children. You know, so powerful a reply. They never asked me any more questions. That'd be wonderful. Did you not understand what I was talking about just then? I beg your pardon. You weren't listening hard enough to the Bible reading. Friends, we're going to talk about God's word. Let's pray that he will speak to our hearts and souls. We will be changed. Let's pray to him. Father, thank you for your word. You are a speaking, not a silent God. And in the midst of distraction, worry, anxiety, excitement, plans, thoughts, dreams, uh, we pray that at this moment, as we think about your word, uh, we will be gripped by it. We will not leave here the same uh, but changed, transformed more in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, can you believe it? We finally uh, made it, the end of 2020. Uh, it's just nearly over. And of course, I have this opinion that we kind of think January the 1st on 2021, we're going to wake up as if from a, a trance that 2020 has all been a bad dream, that suddenly COVID will be over, there'll be no more problems, we're beating India in the cricket, everything is right with the world. Of course, that's not going to happen, but at the same point, I understand the desire, because all of us want change, don't we? We certainly want change from where we are. A few years ago, for Christmas, my dad got a Fitbit. Does anyone have a Fitbit? You know what I mean? It's one of those things that tracks your steps and it beeps at you when you've made your steps. This is amusing for a few reasons. First of all, my father is the least active man in the universe. This lectern is more active than dad. I mean, I have never seen him do any exercise ever. But it was also funny because every time it would beep, it gives a little electronic smiley face, and I would see that he would smile back at it like it was looking at him. You know. Now, I want to say my father is a very honest Man, I mean that. He has the utmost integrity, the most honest man I know. I've never known him to tell a lie. But he got so obsessed with this Fitbit, and the idea is you walk, you know, it counts your steps. He got so obsessed with it that from time to time, I'd look over at him watching telly, and he's sitting there with some chocolate and a Coke and his remote control perched on his stomach, and his hands down like this. <laughs> Just... <laughs> we all want transformation. We all want to change. The reason my dad, I think, bought into the Fitbit illusion, sorry, not that Fitbit's, it's terrific, but the reason I think my dad bought into it is he believes, like all of us, that change is a good thing. That when we change, stop something, start something, add something, subtract something, there'll be a different version of ourselves, an improved version of ourselves. Now, I want to say to you, as we look forward to 2021, and in particular, as we look forward at this passage this morning... The wonderful news is that God wants and desires your transformation more than you do. Did you know that? Desire and improvement and change and transformation is a wonderful, a glorious and divine godly thing, if it's about focused on the right thing. And God desires your transformation even more than you do. In fact, more than that, God offers you transformation. But here's the key. Whereas the transformation we obsess with, the transformation we desire on the January the 1st, 2021, the transformation we desire with resolutions and adding and subtracting is all about self-reflection. God's avenue for your eternal transformation will not be found in self-reflection. Did you catch that? God's avenue for your transformation will not be found in self-reflection, rather... It will only be found in reflection upon Jesus Christ. 
God offers you eternal, divine, radical transformation. But it can never come from knowing yourself better. It will only come from knowing who Jesus is better. And it's only when you understand him, when you know who he is, what he loves, what he hates, who he is to us right now, who he is to us as Christians, who he is to the people we know who aren't Christians, that we can ever begin to see the transformation we desire, spiritual transformation, occur in our hearts. So the big question for us is, who is Jesus? Not a straightforward question. Do you know my children have this nativity, that's not the word, um, words of Jesus, Advent. Advent, my wife called, thank you darling, uh, Advent uh, calendar, which gives a new title for Jesus every day. Have you seen those before? A wonderful little thing that you get to understand that Jesus had all types of um, titles and names in the New Testament and the Old Testament of the Bible. Just the other day, at Christmas Eve, we had Luke chapter 2, and if you've got a Bible there, flick over there if you want. Luke chapter 2 read to us, and the angels make a declaration about Jesus where they proclaim some of these titles. Have a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 11. The angels appear to the shepherds. This is what they say about Jesus, the baby. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This wee small child has three Declarations, three titles given to him a savior, the Messiah, the Lord. But what do those things mean? What does it actually mean when we call Jesus a savior or call Jesus the Lord? In particular, right now, I want you to focus on that middle title, Messiah. What does it mean when we call Jesus the Messiah? And what possible implication does Jesus being the Messiah have on you and me today? Well, today we're looking at an amazing psalm, Psalm 110. And if you have a Bible, flick back over to it. Psalm 110 is unique and remarkable for a series of reasons. Chief amongst them is the fact that Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter in the New Testament, the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament, more than Isaiah 53, more than any other part of Scripture. Isaiah, sorry, Psalm 110 is quoted. Why? Because Psalm 110 reveals to us the true identity of Jesus in a way that is striking and shocking and powerful and radically transformative. It is not possible to truly comprehend the depth, the richness, the greatness, the power of Jesus until you come to terms with who Jesus is as revealed in this psalm. But I do want to warn you. For many of us here who are Christians, we have um, preconceived notions about Jesus. Depending on the way you're wired, you might think of Jesus most commonly as the baby. Or maybe you think of Jesus on the cross or the risen. Or maybe you think of Jesus with animals and children. <laughs> but this picture that we're given of Jesus um, is confronting. And yet, it's the one about who Jesus is today, right now. Has huge consequences on our lives. So, have a look at Psalm 110. I want to make it clear from the beginning that this is a complicated psalm. I want you to think of it like a puzzle with separate pieces to it. 
And you need to see each piece on its own, understand it, and then put it together. And it's not until you put them all together that you get the real big picture of what's being said. This psalm is so complicated that for the first 1,000 years after it was written, no one understood it at all. So if you find yourself confused at any point today, you're in very good company. Okay, This is a psalm which has baffled people for years, and yet through the lens of Jesus, it is made clear to us. So have a look, Psalm 110. I want you to take note of the very first words of it. It says, of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, that of David, a psalm section that you see there, uh, that's in the original text. Okay, that's not been put in later by editors. That's in the original text. That's vital, a vital clue for us who it's written by. It's written by a man called King David. So who is David? Well, David wrote most of the Psalms. He's the greatest king of Israel. But there's something very important primarily for us to understand today about David. And that is that there was a prophecy made that a descendant of David's would be the Messiah. 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to check it out later. That one of David's ancestors would be the Messiah, the chosen one. Okay? Have a look what it says next. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. So here we have David, the great king, the greatest king, from whom the Messiah, the chosen one, would come from. Here he proclaims, the Lord says to my Lord. Are you confused already? So let's look at it for a second. It's very important to understand those two lords are different words. The first Lord is Yahweh God. Clear enough. The second Lord, though, that word in Hebrew is Adonai, and that word means master. So the direct translation is, King David, the greatest king, says, God says to my master. Why did this confuse people? Well, if you want to see why it confused people, flick over to our second Bible reading, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus uh, hints at the confusion for us. In fact, he does more than that. He makes it very clear. Have a look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 is where we're going. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, David, so I beg your pardon, Jesus here, he quotes the psalm. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Just pause. Are the Pharisees right or wrong? Right. The, the Messiah will be a son of David. Remember, one of the descendants of David will be the Messiah. On the same page? He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's verse 1 of Psalm 110. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You see, my dear friends, the reason this psalm confused so many people for so many years, for a thousand years, the Jewish scholars were absolutely baffled by it, is that David is the greatest king of Israel. And David had no Adonai. He had no lords. He had no masters. Yes, he had a God, but he didn't have a human master. In the prophecy of the Messiah, the Jewish people had no idea that that was a divine prophecy. The Jewish people didn't and don't believe in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when they hear Messiah, all they're hearing is a descendant of David, a chosen one, a great one, one given by God, but after all, just a descendant of David. So if David has no masters, how can he say to God, God, you say to my master? Verse 2. 
No wonder people were confused. So why does Jesus quote this psalm? Well, you see, Jesus is pointing at something for us to grasp hold of here. And this is the first piece of the puzzle. That while Psalm 110 is about the Messiah, there's something about the Messiah that the Jewish people didn't and still don't understand. That yes, that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, but there's more to him than just being a chosen one of God. How do we know? Because he quotes Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is where the true nature of the Messiah is revealed in black and white, in crystal clarity. Who is the Messiah? What will he do and what does it mean? Well, that's what Jesus is pointing at. So turn back, Psalm 110. First piece of the puzzle, I hope, is in play. Jesus claims to be the Messiah, points that there's something more about the Messiah. Not only that, but the truth of that is revealed in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 reveals for us two aspects of the Messiah's character, um, which we're going to look at in a little bit of detail here this morning that I want us to focus on. Two characteristics which I want to suggest to you have enormous urgent consequences for not just your life today, but the lives of every single person you've ever met. The life of the person you love the most, the life of the person you don't even know, is urgently, radically, desperately in question due to what we read next. So what does this passage teach us about Jesus, the Messiah? Well, piece number two. Jesus is king. Look at verse one and verse two. Verse one, the Lord Yahweh says to Adonai, the master Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, sitting at your right hand, you might have being familiar with that language before Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, after his ascension from the dead. You might know that kind of language before. Sitting at your right hand is not saying, hey, you're second cab off the rank. You're number two. Sit there. Sitting at your right hand is a claim, is, is a terminology that indicates equality, honor, respect, power. And so we have here God the Father saying to this Messiah, the Master, Adonai, Jesus, you will sit equal with me. What? Just a man? But there's more. Verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this is not just the Messiah who is sitting at the right hand of God. This is the Messiah who is a king who will do what? Rule. Who do we think rules? Well, if you're like me, 11 o'clock every day, you turn on the news and you see our wonderful Premier Gladys tell us what we can and can't do. Or you look to the Prime Minister or perhaps to presidents, dictators and despots. But here the claim is simple. Those rulers operate under the authority, under the permission of the one with ultimate authority. Jesus is not just a, he is the king right now. He is the king right now. And the book of Revelation makes it very clear, the last book in the Bible, that he's not just one of many. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He reigns and he rules. Now there's two consequences for that for you and I. If you are one of God's people... The consequence is amazing. 
if you are not one of God's people, the consequence is amazingly terrifying. Look at verse 3. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. God's people, whilst once we were enemies of God, have become his children, his troops, his soldiers, but not firing bullets or arrows, but proclaiming the glorious word of God to a desperate world. We love the reign of King Jesus. Amen? Amen. We love the reign of King Jesus. There was a time we didn't. There was a time that we had no interest in him whatsoever, and yet the Spirit has worked in our hearts, and we love that he's our king. He's a glorious, gracious, merciful king. But it's terrifying news if he isn't. Verse 1 and 2. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 3. Verse 2. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 5. Verse 7. Jesus will judge this king will judge people with severity, with fairness and justice, but with severity. This is painting a time for us in the future, a time where there will be enforced universal acknowledgement of Jesus as king. But do not put on rose-colored glasses assuming, oh, this means there'll be a time everyone is a Christian. No. This is proclaiming for us that there is a time when, yes, God's people will bow our knee before the King Jesus and praise his name. But people who do not love Jesus will also bow their knee before his authority, but not in praise, but in judgment. This is a time when people will finally see the truth. So the question is, if this is how Jesus will treat his enemies, he will enforce their acknowledgement of him. He will punish them and judge them with severity. Who are his enemies? Well, none of us, of course. I mean, none of us are enemies of Jesus. I mean, the enemies of Jesus, they must be horrible people. Hitler, always. Stalin, Osama bin Laden, terrible, wicked people. They're the enemies of Jesus, not me. But that's not what the passage says. It's not what the Bible continues to say. An enemy of Jesus is anyone who does not acknowledge Jesus as king. An enemy of Jesus is anyone who, instead of acknowledging Jesus as king, has put themselves in the throne reserved for him. And the Bible goes on to say that all of us in this room, everyone you know and do not know, has at one point in their lives been an enemy of Jesus. And unless they have put their throne before his throne and cried out, Lord, save me, then enmity is where they remain. And that means every single person we know who doesn't love Jesus is an enemy of Jesus. And allow me to say to you right now, as someone with dear people in my life who do not love Jesus, that it is a terrifying thing indeed, a terrifying thing to be enemies with the King of the universe, the one who will one day judge, isn't it? I wonder if this seems harsh to you. Does it seem a little bit like, whoa, this isn't Jesus meek and mild. This isn't Jesus with the lambs, always with lambs. This isn't Jesus with the kid. This is, I understand. But this is the clear picture we have of Jesus today 
and in the future. How can it be so? Well, it's all about every action having a reaction, every action having a consequence. Think about it this way. I've got a mate, it's a true story, I've got a mate called Mitch, and um, Mitch loves to fight, okay? Uh, there was never a time where he would play a game of football and would not be sent off first. He used to play football just to get in fights. He used to love it. Now, the thing about getting in a fight in the glorious God's favourite game of rugby league is very, very simple. Amen. Uh, it's, it's very, very simple that although it's not allowed technically, it's kind of tolerated, certainly back in the day. You know, you're allowed to get in fights, and unless the other person didn't press charges or something, you just, you know, nothing would happen. So Mitch would get in fights and get sent off, and nothing would happen. He'd do something, the consequence would be relatively minor. But I want you to imagine a, a different universe. Okay, Mitch gets in a fight, punches someone in the face, gets red carded. But instead of accepting the ruling, Mitch turns to the referee and... You ever punched a referee? Not a good idea. I can imagine. <laughs> Same action, different consequence. The police are called. They come to arrest him. But Mitch, he ducks, he weaves, he slides, he swerves, and boom! Punches one of the cops straight in the face. You ever done that? I imagine. Same action, different consequence. Mitch escapes from the police and runs to the airport. He's got the only plane that's flying. Okay, he jumps on it and it takes him straight to London. He gets out of the plane, he gets in a black cab, he goes all the way to Buckingham Palace. Now, if I've learned anything from my wife watching The Crown, is that security at Buckingham Palace is not tight. Okay, so he climbs over the fence, he runs into the kitchen, there's Lizzie having her wheat picks, and he punches a 99-year-old woman in the face. But this isn't an ordinary 99-year-old woman. This is the queen. Same action, different consequence. Why? It's all about the position of the person being assaulted. It's all about the position that they hold in the world. Oh, none of us have punched Jesus in the face. We've done far, far worse. We've rejected him completely and said that his authority in this earth doesn't mean a thing. You know, it's one thing to abuse and hurt and ignore one another. It's horrible, isn't it? None of us like it. It's horrible being hurt and abused. It's horrible when you realize you've done that to someone else. But when we do it to Jesus... This isn't Jesus, meek and mild, slightly offended because he wants to be loved. Get real. This is Jesus, the King, whose reign and rule lasts forever, whose name is exalted in the heavenly places, who was there at the beginning of the creation of the world, whose very word was the one who created the very world. We've become his enemies by our nature. Enemies of the king. And the reality is, if you have not put your knee in the ground and begged for his forgiveness, if Jesus hasn't become your king, then you remain his enemy. And for everyone you know who doesn't call Jesus king, they remain an enemy. And it is a terrifying thing indeed 
to be enemies with the king of the universe. Amen. That's puzzle piece number two. Jesus is king. But verse four of Psalm 110 makes it even a little bit more confusing, particularly for people reading this in the thousand years before Jesus, after this was written. Have a look at verse four. I'll read it for you if you don't have a Bible. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the Lord very rarely swears, takes an oath in the Bible because he cannot lie. So for the Lord to take an oath, someone who cannot lie, to say, I'm not going to lie, seems a bit superfluous, a bit redundant. So why does he do it? Well, in the Hebrew dictionary, the Hebrew language, there's no punctuation. There's no underline and emojis. He can't put an emoji at the end of it. This is to announce meaning. This really means something important to God. What does he say? You, Adonai, Master, Lord, Messiah, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is King. And now we read and hear Jesus is priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, to grasp hold of it, we just need to understand those two words, priest and Melchizedek. When you and I hear priest, we can often think the Christian version, often seen in the Catholic, the Orthodox, or some of the Anglicans, uh, use that word. Now, we don't have time to get into why we don't use that word, but suffice to say, a priest in those Christian churches, um, they lead, they teach, they preach, they do a bunch of stuff similar to the pastors here. A few little things different, but a bunch of things vaguely similar. But in the Old Testament of the Bible, before Jesus, there was another priesthood. Did you know that? Priests in the Old Testament, Jewish priests. And they are different to Christian priests. They have different functions and different roles, different um, qualifications as well. You ready? Qualification number one. If you were to be a Jewish priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. You couldn't just be anyone from another tribe, from another country, come and say, I'm going to be a priest. Only one tribe could produce priests. That was Levi, Levites. Later on, after King David, kings could only come from the tribe of Judah. Just like the royal family can only come from one incestuously weird family, the Windsors, this was the tribe of Judah. This was our own version, a better version. Tribe of Judah for kings, tribe of Levites, tribe of Levi for priests. So their qualifications are different and their functions completely different. Yes, they taught, they preached, they, they led, but they did two other things crucial for us to understand. One, Jewish priests were the mediators between humanity and God. Do you know what a mediator is? Someone who represents someone else, intervenes on their behalf. We don't do that anymore. But they did. And the way they primarily did it was the second difference. They did it by sacrifice. So just say, we're a Jewish congregation. How much sins are between us for a year? Five, ten? Trillion a day? Whatever it is. Okay? You've got these sins... The Jewish priest would take animal, animals, a whole herd of animals, and go to the temple and sacrifice the animals. The blood that was shed by those animals would wash clean the sins of the congregation, of the Jewish people. 
The priests mediated, were in the middle between the people and God, and they did that primarily by sacrifice. Now, of course, there was a problem with that, wasn't there? Once the sacrifice was made, what did the people keep doing? They kept sinning, like you and I. They kept sinning. So the priests had to keep going back again and again and again. It was a temporary sacrifice. It didn't have an eternal value, but back and back and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's a priest. Who's Melchizedek? We don't have much time to go into it. But Melchizedek was only mentioned once up until this point in the Bible. For such an important figure, just three or four verses. It's in Genesis chapter 14. If you've got time, you can go there. If not, I'll read it for you anyway. Genesis chapter 14, you've got Abram, became Abraham. He wins a battle. And then this mysterious figure called Melchizedek turns up. So stay with me. Stay with me. This mysterious figure, Melchizedek, turns up. And we find out a crucial bit of information about him. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So priests could only come from the tribe of Levi. Kings could only come from the tribe of Judah. And yet 430 years prior to any of this happening, here's this man, Melchizedek, never mentioned afterwards, never mentioned before. But what is he? Verse 14, verse 18. He is a king and a priest. What on earth does any of this have to do with us? Well, believe it or not, it's got everything to do with you. You see, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, they were desperate. They'd been attacked and assaulted for thousands of years, run down, beaten, smashed. Egyptians, Philistines, Babylonians, Assyrians, now finally the Romans. They were desperately calling out for a king, a Messiah, a saviour. They read the Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah. They were utterly baffled. And can you imagine reading the Old Testament without Jesus, by the way? You'd have no idea how to make heads and tails of most of it. A lot of it seems to contradict just these random strands, random strands that have no connection with one another. So the Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah who's going to be a general and a king, but a priest and and a prophet and all these kind of things. They didn't know what they were waiting for, but they knew they needed a king. But more than a king, what they actually needed was a priest. Why? Because the biggest problem the Jewish people had was not their assaulting, being assaulted by other people. The biggest problem the Jewish people had was themselves, was their rejection of God. One of the bylines running its way through the Old Testament is the constant rejection of God by God's people. The constant rejection of God by God's people, despite God making himself present and known, his love secure, his his work powerful, they rejected him again and again. So the Jewish people were broken and run down, absolutely battered. But worst of all, they were enemies of God. They had rejected God. They were desperate. So what on earth does that have to do with you and me? What on earth does desperation and weariness have to do with you and me? Here we are. Look at us. The last few days of 2020. And the truth is that for nearly every single person on the planet, nearly, 
We have never known a time like this. We're battered and weary, run down. We argue amongst ourselves, do this, don't do that, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, do this, do that. We think COVID is the problem. Oh, if only the solution will come, if only the vaccine will come. But COVID's not the problem, is it? It's a symptom of the problem. Just like the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they weren't the problem for the Israelites. They were the symptoms of the problem. What was the problem? Godlessness. We think COVID is the greatest problem in our age. It's nothing more than a symptom, a temporary symptom at that, of the bigger problem working its way through every human heart. A rejection of God. Saying to him, no. And we think a cure to COVID is going to change everything in our lives. It will do nothing. It's a temporary fix to a temporary problem. The eternal problem is that we refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And so there we have these pieces of a puzzle. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the King. Jesus the Priest. But what picture does it make for us? Well, I want you to imagine that t- tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, when's the first? Tuesday? Whenever it is. Who knows in between this Christmas New Year period? It could be any day. Who, who cares? Okay. But on the 1st of January, you wake up and the newspaper's there and it says, Alleluia! I mean, it won't because they're not Christian, but they'll say, Celebration! Woo! The cure is here. And it turns out that somebody, some nobody, from some know-nothing town like Newcastle. <laughs> Have you been there? Ugh. Worse, Wollongong. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm from Sydney. You know, the other day I was at the beach, yesterday I was at the beach, and someone, there was another group of people came and took our place on the beach, and they were from Sydney. I've lived on the Central Coast for four months, and I looked at them and went, Sydney scum. <laughs> Get out. Locals only. Where was I? You wake up, cure, Newcastle, person, woo, cure is here. We don't need to worry about COVID anymore. Oh my goodness. But then it comes out that that's just the beginning of the good news. Because this guy, this random nobody from a know-nothing town, he hasn't just developed a cure, he's also developed a vaccine, which means no one will ever catch it again. Not only that, he's also come up with an antidepressant to conquer COVID-related anxiety. You think that's something that's nothing. This same nobody from a know-nothing town also develops an economic strategy to bring Australia out of the economic doldrums that will happen in the next couple of decades. It's as if COVID never existed. There is no repercussion, no problem left with it. All because of this one person. Can you imagine that happening? Truth is, it can't, can it? It's impossible. I mean, at very best, for all of these things to actually make any sense and happen... We're going to need thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world working very hard together. And in five or ten years' time, we might come up with something like it. But on its own, the Jewish people needed a king to rescue them from their slavery. But not slavery to the Romans, but slavery to sin. But what good is a king If at the end of it all, they stand before God and they cannot be atoned for. They needed a priest. 
A priest who would mediate between them and God and cleanse them by sacrifice. The Australian people, we need a king. And not from London. We need a king who will rescue us from our slavery to sin. But what good is a king if we still stand before God with our sin on our shoulders, unatoned for, we need a priest. And yet these two pieces of the puzzle cannot join together because God's law has dictated that a priest must come from Levi and a king must come from Judah and the Messiah is just a man. Yet into this darkness, into our darkness, shone God's great light. Jesus. He was born in a dusty, dirty stable. He had no education, not from a prominent family. He would have been called a bastard by schoolyard bullies because his parents weren't married when he was conceived. He was a rural tradesman working as a carpenter. On surface level, less than nothing for people to attract themselves to him. But then, suddenly, at the age of 30-ish, he speaks. And as he speaks, people hear, and as they hear, they're transfixed. He's saying things we've never heard before. He performs signs and wonders. He heals illnesses. He controls the wind and the waves. He raises the dead. Things people had never seen. All the hope, all the expectation, all the life. It seemed to me finally salvation was here. And then he's killed. That strand of hope. But his death was just the beginning. Because three days later, he would rise from the dead. And that truth of God, the context, the context that had taken thousands of years to accumulate together. The prophecies, the promised land, the covenants, the promises. It becomes clear to all who would hear and see that when Jesus turned up and spoke, he was bringing it together. It became clear that all these loose strands that hung from the Old Testament, that if you pulled on them on their own, they made no sense. They all came and accumulated and tied up together perfectly in the person of Jesus. How can David's son be both son of David and Lord? Because he is both the Messiah and the Son of God. How can this Messiah be both king and priest? Because his kingship is given to him by Yahweh, by the God Almighty upon his resurrection from the dead and ascension to the heavens. And his priesthood is not in the order of Levi or the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. And why did Jesus not overthrow the Roman government and put himself in the highest office of the land? Why does he not come and cure covid because he knows the biggest problem that we have. And it's not COVID. It's not money. 
It's not our children's education. It's not property prices. It's not my employment. It's not my marriage. The biggest problem we have is sin. Is that we've rejected Jesus as king. We deserve to be God's enemies. And left to our own devices, that's exactly what we are. And so when Jesus came, he came not just as a king, but as a priest. What does the priest do? He mediates between sinful people and a perfect holy God. He steps in between a rebellious enemy and the holy one. And he sacrifices the animals. He sheds blood. He brings the lamb to shed its blood so that sin can be washed clear. Jesus is Messiah, Son of God and Messiah. Jesus is King, the King by His resurrection. Jesus is priest in the order of Melchizedek. But not just those things, Jesus is the Lamb. He is the sacrifice. And all the promises of God find a yes and amen in Jesus Christ. If you go forward in the New Testament, I'll ask you to do this with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews um, speaks a lot about Jesus' priesthood, speaks a lot about Jesus' um, lineage, speaks a lot about what Jesus will do. We're going to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Now just, we're going to go verse 20 to the end of the chapter, and I know it might seem like a, a big reading, but please listen to this, understanding the true character and nature of Jesus and yourself. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The law appoints as high priests men in their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Three things. One, verse 25. What does this mean for us today? Verse 25. As priest, Jesus offers you complete salvation forever. I do not know what burden you are carrying around your soul. I do not know the thing that you have which you feel cannot be forgiven. It could be reoccurring. It could have been a once-off. 
It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what you've seen, what you've said, what you've thought. No matter how heinous your sin, Christ can save you completely, eternally. Because it's not based on your goodness, but on his sacrifice. Number two, as priest, Jesus intercedes for you. What that means is Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ, is intervening on your behalf, mediating on your behalf to God, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year, right now. He prays for you. He represents you to God. And unlike us, he knows what we need. And he brings it towards the Father. He is your priest. Finally, how? Verse 26. Because of who he is. Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is resurrected, ascended, glorified, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So how is who you are transformed by who he is and what he's done? Because he has died and risen from the dead so that you can make him your king. He has died and risen from the dead as a priest so that you can be adopted by God and call God Father. How does that make a difference in your life? Well, my dear friends, your eternity can be changed, yes, but also your today. Is Jesus your king? If the answer is yes, that means that you're not the king. And that means all your fears, all your anxieties, all your plans, all your designs, all your worries about yourself and your children and your spouse and your house and your car, all these things only operate under the reign and rule and permission of Jesus as king. So stop pretending to be the king. You ain't. You're not. It's not going to work. Instead, rest in him. And if Jesus isn't your king, if you have rejected Jesus as your king, it's not too late. Can I urge you? Can I beg you? Turn to him. And cry out to him for mercy. He is a merciful king who has become a priest so you can become a child of God. You know, our New Year's resolutions, they come and they go. But the reign and the rule of Christ lasts forever. What a wonderful and glorious thing. Let's finish by praying. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. That your son became our king. Your son became our priest. Your son is our king and is our priest through his death and resurrection, through his ascension, through his reign and rule. Lord, help us to live with Christ as king, to put our faith in him, to follow him. And I pray for those here who do not yet know you, but who know in their heart of hearts that it's true and who want to bow their knees before your throne. I pray that you would work in their spirits bringing them to you.
so they may know the glory of being one of your people. We pray this in Jesus' powerful, perfect, and holy name. Amen.